And we're ready for a busy day, right? Got about a hundred things to do today that we need to get done. And, you know, never enough time, but we'll get there. So, what we have, uh, only, only thing due this week is your exam replacement, if you have that. If it's something you're going to be emailing to me, you still have through tomorrow. If you're going to be bringing something in, uh, you still have to tomorrow. I'll be here. I have class from 11 to 11.50 tomorrow and I'll be here till shortly after that and then I have to leave for a meeting at Central Campus and I'll be gone all afternoon. You can still leave something at the office or in the mailbox, that's fine, and I'll get it. But I won't be, if you're looking to give it to me personally, you do it in the morning or email it to me or whatever. And if you want a confirmation on the email, just remind me, you know, if you want to make sure I got it, say please let me know and I'll reply back and let you know that yeah, I got your email. And that way if you don't hear from me within a few hours most likely by that evening, by sometime that evening, or if you send it real late by a Saturday morning, if you don't hear back from me, you know, try again or find some other way to get a hold of me so we know. But that's the only thing that's due this week. Then coming up, we have homework seven and exam four, which I'll be gi I've given you homework seven. Uh, if you need a copy, I can get you another copy today. And exam four, I'll be handing out at the end of class today, which are both due on the 24th. And again, I hate putting them both together, but so much of the material overlaps. I don't want you doing the exam and then saying, you know, if I'd done the homework first, I might have might have helped me. So I'm going to give them both to you, to you there. And then, as a reminder, Professor DeLisi's lecture is next Wednesday. I'll give you a reminder of that again on Tuesday if you want to come to that. He'll be giving that in Cooper 204 at 7 o'clock in the evening. So you're welcome to come to that. That's about life in the universe. Something we'll talk about, it'll be probably much our last day of class, is what it will that will be what we'll covering, be covering then. And then the Solar Observations Project, that's the other thing that we're going to be working on today after I do a little bit of a lecture. Uh, we'll be working on the Solar Observations Project. I have some numbers for you. We'll go through some calculations as a group. I'll go through and do examples up on the board and then you can work, we'll have time to work on those and graphs here in class afterwards. And I'll give you that and I'll be happy to take a look at any of, any of those. So that's what's coming up. That's pretty much the end of April and then all we have is the last week coming up in May to finish up. So general questions on anything coming up? Yes, sir. So what you said about the exam, all we have to do is just email it to you? I mean, if it's something e that you can email me, you know, like someone did a painting, it's kind of hard to, you know, email that to me. But yeah, if you're doing something textual, you know, paper, article, something, something like that, something that. So you can't turn it to you at the end of class? You can. No, you can. I'm just saying if, you, if you're not done and you need till tomorrow, you're not, we're not going to see, I'm not going to see you till next Tuesday. You still have that time if you want to give it to me after class. Oh, give it to me. I'll, I'll be more than happy to take it. But you just have that option to email it through the end of the day tomorrow. You know, if it's something that can be emailed. Anything else? Okay. Picture of the day for today. Not very far out there this, this time, actually relatively close to home. Uh, Space Shuttle Discovery, sort of its last flight to the Smithsonian. Not by itself. Space Shuttle can't fly under its own power in the atmosphere. It has no way to launch. You know, it can't launch like an airplane. It can glide down uh, to, to land like an airplane, but it actually can't launch or fly through our atmosphere under its own power. So it pretty much is set just to come from space back in. So it's actually flying on a Boeing 747 
especially mounted up on there to be able to transport it. And this space shuttle Discovery is actually on its way to the Smithsonian, or is now at the Smithsonian, and is going to be on display there as a permanent display of one of the space shuttles. All the space shuttles uh, remaining have been spread out across the, across the country at various museums now that are, uh, that are on display. So this is just sort of the pretty silhouette of it making its last its last flight in towards uh, Washington DC and the Smithsonian. Discovery was the space shuttle that actually launched the Hubble Space Telescope too. So this is actually the one that you know, 20 some years ago was, the, was that shuttle that took the Hubble Space Telescope up into space which is still giving us some very interesting, interesting and amazing things. So. Questions? No? No? Pretty little picture, not too far out there, this, not too far out there this time. All right. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to work on, we're going to do a little bit of work. I'm going to go through a little bit of chapter 15 that we've been working on. And I doubt I'll finish it. I'm going to spend probably about 20, 25 minutes at the most on it. Gets you through some, of it, some more of it. It's because I don't want to end up too far behind. We're still on a decent schedule to finish everything that we need to finish. May not seem like it. we've only got two more weeks left to go, but we should be able to finish everything, everything that we need, to, we need to get through. So I want to get, spend a little bit of time here. Then I'll take a little bit of time after that. I have, I have course evaluations for you to do. And then I'm going to go through the information on the, on the, to do the, right, the write-up. So we have a few things to get done, done today. The information to do the, sorry, to do the calculations. So let me go ahead and start here. And this is where we finished up last time. We were talking about active, we, talk, we went through galaxies and then we started talking about active galaxies as galaxies that are unusually bright and not just unusually bright visibly but unusually bright in all wavelengths. They were real bright in x-rays and gamma rays. They were real bright in radio waves compared to a normal galaxy. And one of the types of active galaxies is called a radio galaxy. Now, typically, galaxies are made up of stars. They emit the same type of radiation a star does. And the typical star does not emit a lot of radio radiation. So when you find a galaxy that's emitting very strongly in the radio part of the spectrum, it is something unusual. It's something unusual is going on. And the picture here shown is a very unusual galaxy in that it's a very large elliptical galaxy that you can see here. So you see the elliptical shape to the outer part, but it has a big dust lane going through it. Now, if you recall from last time, elliptical galaxies don't have dust. Right? Elliptical galaxies have no dust, no star formation. So something really strange is going on here. And what we think it may be is there's actually a spiral galaxy, something with a lot of gas and dust that may be colliding into this elliptical galaxy and causing it to emit more radiation in different parts of the spectrum than it otherwise would. When we look at that same picture in the radio, here's that galaxy, same image from up here, but we've overlaid the radio portion, what we see, where we see the intense radio emission coming from, and it's not coming from the same spot. You see all the stars there. Again, remember the stars don't emit a lot of, of radio radiation, so they're pretty much invisible, but there's these two giant lobes off to either side, which is where the radio radiation is coming from. And if you look back, they seem to be coming. There's 
some sort of jet of material maybe spewing out here, maybe something on the other side. But it all seems to be happening down deep in the core of this galaxy. So there's something very interesting happening in that core, probably to do with the central black hole or black hole that is at the center of that galaxy. Now, not all radio galaxies look like that. There are some radio galaxies that don't have those jets. They're just a galaxy that are emitting an intense amount, much, much more intense amount of radiation, radio radiation, than you would otherwise expect. You could look at a typical galaxy and you wouldn't see. It wouldn't be bright in the radio. It wouldn't look like it's emitting a lot of radio radiation. These types of galaxies are, but they're different in that they really don't have, you know, some of them are just very concentrated. Don't have really any of those long lobes and jets that we saw in the other, in the other case. And what we think might be happening here, I'm sorry, question. Sorry. Um, does the same theory apply to uh, those uh, radio galaxies? These, this type or? Yeah, that, mm -hmm. the one where, where uh, they think that a spiral galaxy collided with this. It could be something similar. There could be some sort of collision, some sort of activity, something, go, something going on with that black hole. It could be a number of different things with the black hole. But we all think it has something to do with that major black hole at the center that is causing the energy. So it's all something with, it might be being fed, you know, feeding the beast by some other method. You know, there might not be two galaxies colliding all the time, although that's a likely method because it disrupts the material and sends material in close enough to the black hole for the gravitation to take effect. But what we think with these two types, it looks like there's two different types of radio galaxies and they might really be one. It might just be an, a matter of how you're looking at it. We looked at pictures of spiral galaxies and you saw some that were nice, beautiful spiral arms facing you. And you saw others that looked very flat, thin galaxies where you really couldn't see anything. And what you, see, what you might be seeing here is something similar with the radio galaxies. That depending on how you look at it, if you're looking at it face on here, you might see there's your energy source, which you really can't see, but you see jets of material streaming out and lobes. And if you're looking at this direction, you're going to see that whole thing spread across the sky. That's what we see in Centaurus A, that picture I showed you, the first picture I showed you today. But we don't get to choose where we are looking at the galaxy. We're only in one place. We can only look at it from one view. So what would we see if we were looking from this view? If we happen to be out in that part of the universe? Or if the jets happen to be pointed towards us in this case? In that case, you wouldn't really see any of the rest of this. You'd just see all of it would be confined to the same area of the sky and you would see then a what we call a core dominated. It just looks like a very strong core. It's probably the same effect and if there were some astronomer looking at that same galaxy from a different perspective, they'd see it as you know, this type of galaxy. So it has to do with, similar to the way we talked about the pulsars. You know, pulsar, you know, you see it as a pulsar, but not everyone in the universe would only if that beam happens to pass across your line of sight, if it happens to pass across your field of view. If it does not, then you're not going to be able to see that. So it's really just a viewing aspect with those two types of radio galaxies. But jets seem to be a common factor in the, of them and this is actually that's the large galaxy in Virgo. It's a very large elliptical galaxy. And if you zoom into the center, so here's a wide field picture. You see the whole galaxy, just a big elliptical galaxy, many billions or trillion of star, trillion stars. And if you zoom in, 
you can actually see as you look in towards the visible and even in closer in towards the infrared, there's actually a jet of material coming from the interior. So most of these active galaxies have some sort of jet. Something is going on at the central, near that central black hole. Again, never within it. Once you're in the black hole, you're out of luck. Nothing comes back out. But right around it, a lot of very interesting things can happen. And there is the possibility that as material is streaming in, spewing in towards the black hole, sort of in a little disk spiraling in, that some of the material can get thrown out. Enough energy can be produced to throw the energy the material out in, in a jet away from the black hole. Again, not out of the black hole itself, but out of that general direction. A lot of these active galaxies also show signs of interaction. Some way of interacting, something's going on to feed that black hole. If the black hole's sitting there all by itself, it will have long since eaten up anything that's close to it, and it will sit there calmly. Nothing's happening with the black hole unless you're giving it some food, unless you're throwing stars and material and gas into it. It's just sitting there just fine. It's not going to grab up everything else in the galaxy. It'll just sit there. Something to disrupt the orbits of stars, the orbits of gas clouds in the galaxy, may throw that material in close enough to the black hole for its gravitation to take effect. So that's why a lot of these do look like they are interacting. Some of them may just be far enough away that we can't see the interaction. But as we talked about, a lot of it is due to interaction, some source, something feeding the black hole. Now another type of active galaxy is called a quasar, or a quasi-stellar object. Originally quasar was a quasi-stellar radio source, but now there are some that aren't ra- radio sources. So that was originally how they were found. They were actually detected in the radio part of the spectrum. And they were very interesting because they looked like a star. They looked almost exactly like a star. So you had this very faint star that was emitting radio waves. Stars don't emit radio waves. Okay? We can detect the sun in radio waves only because it's so close to us. Objects that are much further away, we're not able to see in radio waves in terms of stars. But these we can. These objects will look, look very much like a star. And if you see, usually when you look at a star, you see those little diffraction points, sort of a little cross shape on it, which is an artifact of the telescope. And you'll see that. So that makes it means it's all coming almost from a point. It's very much like a star. So these were objects that looked like stars, but were very unusual. And when you went to try to go classify them, right? We try to classify stars, look at their spectrum. Their spectral lines were very unusual. So we couldn't find you know, the hydrogen lines and you couldn't find the helium lines that you're not used to looking at in stars. You couldn't find all of those lines. What we found when we looked at them, and this is the actual spectrum of one of the nearer quasars, 3C273, and if you look at the lines here, they actually found finally that these lines that didn't match up with anything in the spectrum we were used to looking at were actually the hydrogen lines but instead of being you know, very close to where they're supposed to be or shifted just a little bit, they were shifted tremendously. So instead of being shifted by a few nanometers, which is typical for a star, you know, stars are moving around, they're going to have a Doppler shift of a little bit, they're actually shifted by you know, 100 nanometers, a very large shift. And if you recall from last time with Hubble's law, the larger the shift, the faster the object is moving away from us. So these were not stars in our galaxy, were not part of our galaxy, but were actually 
the centers of very distant galaxies that are moving away from us at extremely high speeds. So more distant than most of the galaxies we've looked at already, these objects are moving away incredibly quickly. So it took a while to be able to determine what was going on there. They were normal spectra. They weren't made up of anything unusual, any elements that we didn't understand. They were just hydrogen, simple hydrogen lines, the most common element in the universe. But they're shifted at a tremendous amount, shifted a tremendous amount. And that means that they're very, very far away and moving away from us very, very quickly. So, solve the problem, right? We know what they are. Make a new problem. These things have to be, if they're that far away and you can calculate the distance, you're talking many of these quasars are many billions and billions, several billion light years away. So in order for them to be as bright as they are, these tiny little star-like objects, they have to be among the most luminous objects, should be in the universe, not just in the galaxy, but they should be the most luminous objects in the universe. These are some of the brightest objects because otherwise if these were as bright as you know, a typical ordinary galaxy at these distances, we'd never see them. They'd be too faint. They'd be very, very faint. They have to be emitting a lot more energy than a typical galaxy. And they're also very tiny. Remember I said they look like stars. They look almost like a point. So in order for us to be able to see them, they have to be emitting a lot of energy. So we're going back to that active galaxy. There's something going on deep in the core of this quasar, which isn't very big to start off with, that is feeding it, that is causing it to emit all this energy. So something with that large black hole at the center that is collecting material, you know, material spiraling into it, it gets heated up to tremendous temperatures as it gets close before it crosses that event horizon. And then material is again, here's those jets we saw before, the jets are spewing back out into space. So some of the material is captured into the black hole, some does get eaten, literally and other material gets spread out into space, gets spewed back out into space and illuminates the rest of it. But the quasar at the center is very, very tiny but extremely bright. So how do we produce something like this? How do we produce something that's going to be that bright? And what we find, well, how do we understand how that happens? What we have to do is look at the properties. So what are the properties of the act of an active galactic nucleus. So again, you're looking at just the center of a galaxy. We talked about last time about the entire galaxy. We looked at the ellipticals and the spirals. But when we look at the active galaxies, they all have some very different properties to those regular galaxies. And they may not have all of these. They may have some of them. But they tend to be brighter than a typical galaxy. So brighter, and again, brighter not just visibly, so not just visibly brighter, but in radio, in x-rays, they emit more x-rays than a typical galaxy by far. They emit a little more visible light, maybe twice as much, three times, you know, certain amount more. And they emit a lot more radio radiation. They don't look like stars. If I take the spectrum of a typical galaxy, we get that same black body spectrum. It peaks at the visible and it drops off very quickly at the short, wa- or very quickly at the short wavelengths and very slowly at the long wavelengths. That's what a spectrum of a star looks like. These don't look like this. These are almost uniform across this spectrum. They emit a lot of energy at all wavelengths. They're also not constant. They emit a variable amount of energy. Sometimes they're brighter. Sometimes they're fainter. 
Sometimes they get 10 times brighter, 100 times brighter. Sometimes they get back to being faint again. So they can produce more or less energy and they vary very, very quickly. So time scales can be, we looked last time at you know, things that were years, but I've told you that they can be varying on you know, less than a year, months, weeks, days. And when you start to get something that's varying and getting brighter and fainter within a day, that tells us that the object that is producing that energy has to be less than one light day across. The time light can travel in one day. So if we're, in order for it to be varying on that, on, that, on that speed, it has to be smaller than the solar system. So if you're putting, if you're varying on time scales of days and putting out all that energy, you're emitting a lot of energy from something that isn't much bigger than our solar system. Again, our solar system is giant, right? I've already told you that, you know, all the empty space. But our solar system, even though being so giant, is minuscule compared to the galaxy and then the sizes of the galaxies and the distances we're talking about here. You know, our solar system, you know, you can't even, can't even measure that. It's incredibly tiny by comparison. So all that energy is coming from some very, very small area. There are often jets, and I've already shown you some pictures of those. Other signs of things that are explosive going on. And there's extremely fast rotation. The material is rotating very, very quickly. So it gets broad emission lines. So when you look at the lines, instead of being a nice uh, spectral line, a nice thin spectral line, they get broader and broader. The faster the things are rotating, the broader the lines are going to be. So these are all the properties that we see when we look at what we call the central engine or the central beast of an active, ga of an active galaxy. So a theory to, under to explain them has to be able to explain all of these different observations. You know, why do we see high luminosity? Why do we not just see stars? Why is the, how is it varying so quickly? What, where are the jets coming from? Why is it rotating so rapidly? So the leading theory, best theory we have on it, is a black hole. So massive black hole, not like the black holes we talked about with stars, you know, the things that were 2, 5, 10, 20 times the mass of the sun, you know, big black holes there, those are nothing compared to these. Last chapter I mentioned the one at the center of our galaxy which is about 3.5 to 4 million times the mass of the sun. Some of these active galaxies, you get up to even bigger ones. You can get things that are 5, 10, 100 million times the mass of the sun. So you can get masses in just one black hole that could overwhelm our entire galaxy. But what happens, and again, try to emphasize that. Once you get inside wherever the event horizon is of that black hole, you're not seeing anything. That's sort of what this hole is at the center. There's no information coming from that. But just around it, as material spirals in, the material, instead of going straight into the black hole, if it was orbiting a little bit, tends to keep orbiting and it just spirals in in sort of a decaying spiral towards the center of the black hole. As you get more and more material there, it heats up to higher and higher temperatures. So that accretion disk gets very hot, you know, not just thousands of degrees, millions of de many millions of degrees. So it's incredibly hot, emitting a lot of X-rays, gamma rays, all sorts of radiation across the spectrum. And some of that material can get spewed out in a jet, in a jet sort of perpendicular to that disk. So you have this disk of material swirling around the black hole here. And as you get close, before you hit the event horizon, some of the material, not all of it, can actually get sent out in a jet on either side. 
There are magnetic field lines around it. The magnetic field, that's a lot where we see a lot of the radio emission from. These magnetic field lines accelerate these charged particles that are going out there. And as charged particles are accelerated around a magnetic field, they emit a very intense radio radiation. So we can see them very brightly in the radio. That's where a lot of the radio radiation can come from. But that magnetic field also being in a certain direction helps to channel and make the jets well, confi- well confined as we saw in the, in the images. Now in these active galaxies, again, we're not talking about the couple million solar masses that we had you know, in the center of our galaxy. Our galaxy has a very minor black hole by comparison to some of these active galaxies. You can be talking about a black hole that is billions of times the mass of the sun. So very many times, billions and billions of of times the mass of the sun. The accretion disk isn't just a little disk. We talked about accretion disks very briefly when we talked about star formation, how you might form a disk of material around the star. That's very small. Around this black hole, everything is magnified. You're taking whole clouds of gas and dust. You know, imagine all the clouds we've looked at in Orion and we've looked at some of the other nebulae, whole big clouds of gas and dust that are spiraling in. And they may give off, they may lose a lot of energy in terms of, if you think about it, 10 to 20% of their mass before they disappear. Losing 10 to 20% of your mass, remember Einstein equals mc squared. So little tiny bit of mass means a lot of energy. If you're radiating 10 to 20% of these mini solar masses that are coming in to this black hole, that's a lot of energy. The mass difference that forms you know, hydrogen to helium in the sun is relatively small by comparison. It's a very tiny fraction of a percent. So an incredibly small fraction of 1%, here you're getting 10 to 20% of their mass converted into energy. So converting that much, there's a big source, there is a big potential source of energy for these, material, for these objects. And then just going to, I'm going to probably end right about here. This should be good. But just looking at some of the jets. And then we'll come back and look at this again. And I'll finish this up, finish 15 up, and get through most of 16 probably on Tuesday. But just some very nice pictures looking here in both radio jets and the visual picture and the radio jets coming out. And then looking even closer into more detail, if you look into the center, you know, with something like the Hubble telescope, bless you, or, an, or another big telescope, you can see some very interesting pictures. You know, are you seeing signs of the accretion disks and the sign of the material heading in towards that black hole, heading in towards that black hole? So let me stop there with this so I can go through the rest of the material and I'm going to go over what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to go over the examples, give you the material you need for the uh, solar observations. Yeah, we're almost done with that chapter anyway. Okay, I want to give you the material you need for the solar observations. And then I'll go through the examples of how to do the calculation. Then I'm going to give you the course evaluations then. And I'll leave for about five minutes so you can do them. And if someone will volunteer to take them, you can drop them off. They go in the office sort of right by the lab room. So we have lab today. Anyone want to volunteer for me? You want to do it, Cameron? Thank you. You you don't have to take them that instant. If you want to hold on to them and take them at lab time when you're going right down there, that's uh, 232 blocker. So 2.30 is your lab room, and it's the big bay at the end there. The secretary will be right as you go in, and she'll probably have a box to collect them. 
but I'm not supposed to see them or touch them after until, you know, they'll give me results once the grades are, are completed. So I will give you that stuff in a minute, but let me hand out these papers here for you and then I'll go over the couple examples first. And that way I said I'll hand that out and then I'll give you a, I'll give you a few minutes to do that and then I'll come back in and I can go over these calculations with you, make sure that you're getting them, getting them properly. So what I'm going to give you is I'm going to give you a set of sort of a data table like the one you're working on hopefully. That's actually it's last year's data but it'll work, it'll work as well for us from last spring. But it'll give you some, it gives you some measurements but I didn't, I didn't do the calculation portion. So I'm going to show you, step you through doing the calculations on it. And what you can do, depending on how good your observations have come out or how comfortable you are with them, you can actually use this to do the analysis portion of the project so that you, oh, I'm sorry. You can do this to do the analysis portion of the project. Now, you won't, if you don't turn me in any observations, of course, you won't get credit for the, that portion of the project, but you can still get the rest of the credit for it. There you go, sir. And you, sir. So you can still get the rest of that. Let me. Uh, the, I think they were like 20, I have to look at the sheet, I think it was like 20 or 30 points of the 120. So I mean it's, it's going to hurt you, but it's not going to, it'll destroy you a lot more getting a zero on it. You know, a zero would be a, a letter grade, essentially. You know, a zero would take one letter grade down, so. That's sort of the option of doing this is that you have some numbers that you can work with. Now if you did this, I even tell people if you made two or three observations, great, turn those in, I'll give you credit for what you made and that'll help you a little bit. But if you didn't get enough that you don't feel like you can actually do the observations, you can actually do the calculations and everything based on it, then you know, feel free to use my numbers. And if you want to use both, that's perfectly fine. You can use mine and yours and you can get full credit. So it's not using mine that, that affects you, it's just if that's all you turn in. If you turn in the couple observations that you made, I'll give you credit for what, what you did do there. So let me go through an example calculation here. And they're, they're all going to be exactly the same. The only thing that really changes, I tried to make these simple, is the shadow length. So it's the only thing that changes in these. So in order to do the calculation, you fill it in one table one step at a time. It's sort of the table as you go across here works in steps. So the first observation, we had a height, object height was 20 centimeters and the shadow length was 38.65 centimeters. So that's, that's the numbers, that's what you would have on your own data. Now to calculate the next column, which is tangent of theta, so theta is a Greek letter for using for angles and we actually use it as the altitude of the sun. So that is equal to h, whatever the height of your object was, divided by the length of your shadow. So first step for the second, for the first blank column, all you have to do is take the shadow, the object height, divide it by the shadow length and put your number there. And for the first one that was 20 centimeters divided by 38.65 centimeters, which was 0.517. I'm sorry? 
just I'd, I'd keep no more than two or three decimal places is all you need. Yeah, you, I mean, because if you do it, you'll actually you know you'll get your string of 20. But yeah, you'll want to round it wherever it happens to, however it happens to come out. So that's the first cut. So to, so to get that tangent of theta column, that's all you need to do. Take the height of your object, divide it by the length. So you can do that the whole way down and get and get that. The next step is you actually want to find this angle. This is this is the this is the fun one. Um, to get the angle, you have to invert what we call an inverse tangent. Now you will need a scientific calculator. I brought one that I can share. If you have one on your phone or something, you can use. But it's an inverse tangent of that number we just got. Now on a calculator, it's often it could be second function tangent. It might be you know invert. There might be an inverse key. Depends on the specific calculator, and I can show you. I can help you with that if you have one that we can work. And I say I do have one that you can borrow here if you need to use. So that gives you, if you do that, and you put 0.517 and do the inverse tangent, you will get a number in degrees of 27, 27.36 degrees. If you don't get that, if you get something very small, you've got to check the mode setting on your calculator because you're likely not in degree setting. So if you get something smaller than that, you get something that says like oh, about 0.6 or so, what's that going to be? About 0.5, 0.6, then you're, you've got, the settings are wrong, but we can fix, we can fix that. So that's the, hard, that's the third column, that's the second blank column. So first one's very easy. Second one, all you do is take that number on a calculator and do an inverse tangent. And that's it. Then finally, that gives you the altitude. That tells you how high the sun was above the horizon when you made that measurement. So in this case, I'm doing the first measurement here, which is back in early January, before class even started. And the sun was very low in the sky. In January, the sun is very low. We're just coming out of winter, out of, its, out of the lowest point. And the sun is not very high up in the sky. When we do the ones at the end, you'll find that the sun progressively gets higher and higher over the course of the semester. Now the number that we're looking for is actually the declination of the sun. The declination, it's another Greek letter delta, sort of like a 8, but you don't finish it. Start making a figure 8 and don't quite finish it. Don't do the last little part of a loop. And that's simply equal to the altitude we've already determined minus 49.75 degrees. That depends on exactly where you're observing, but unless you're going way out of south central Pennsylvania to observe, the number will be the same. So if you're going, if you took a trip down to Florida and made an observation, that won't work. If you went up to Canada and made an observation, that won't work. But if you're any place around Harrisburg, York, it'll be close enough to, you know, any, any place in the south, in the Hack area, you're going, to be, you're going to be good. So if you did make an observation from someplace else, I had someone go to Arkansas once during the trip and during the class and make an observation, you know, I can get you a different number to use for it. But that's what you'd need. And in this case, you're going to find that it was 27.36 degrees minus 49.75 degrees, which means that the declination is negative, so, which is correct, or minus 22.39. Now you might vary a little bit depending on where you, round, where you round off, but that's what you need for the declination. So first column is this calculation. 
Very easy one. Second one, you have to use that inverse tangent. Once you get through that, the third one again is very easy. All you're doing is taking those numbers you got and subtracting 49.75 degrees. And that will give you your declination column. So that'll fill in all three of these. Yes, sir? So is that a negative That is a negative number. I'm sorry. I didn't, I started, I mentioned it was negative and then I didn't put the negative sign in it. But yes, it is negative. Because it is until we hit spring. So when you get to these ones in the middle of March, then all of a sudden you're going to see them get close to zero and then they're going to pop positive. And they'll be positive for the last portion of this. So it is negative. First day of spring, which I don't have on here, it would have been zero. Would have been exactly zero. The declination would have been zero. And beyond that, right now, if you're making observations, this number would actually come up positive. So they lose everybody. Do one more? Okay, what you can't. Yeah, I have it, but it's. it's what number are you getting? Error. It gives you an error? Yeah. Okay, let me do one. Let me, do people want one more? Because I'll do another yeah. example if we want one, or we're good. Want to do one more? I'm not going to work through all of them, but I'll, let me do one more, and then I can look at yours specifically. I can come around after I do the. Let me do the evaluations, and I'll come back, and I can help everybody individually as we need it. So let's do number two. Number two was height. Still 20 centimeters, same object each time. Length of the object was now 36, or length of the shadow was 36.93. Now I'm not going to go through, oops, not degrees. 36.93 centimeters. So first step, tangent of the altitude is 20 divided by 36.93, which is did my numbers. 0.542. Okay, so that, that's the tangent of the altitude. So the altitude is 0.542, inverse tangent, second function tangent, and you will get about 28 degrees. A little bit higher in the sky. It was 27 degrees. A week later it was 28 degrees. Looks good. The sun should be getting progressively higher over the entire semester. To determine the declination, we take the 28.44 okay, degrees minus the 49.75, which is minus 21.31 degrees. So, sun's getting a little higher in the sky. Same steps you do each time to go through the calculations. You do the same thing. All you're changing in it is this one number. Whatever the length is. For mine, for mine at least. If you're doing your own, of course, both numbers would change. But for mine, all that would that's all that would change. Then, yes sir. Or sir, I see two hands, so go ahead in front. Yeah, I'm going to do that in a second. Is that, did you have one? Same question? Okay. The reason I didn't go over the change of declination, because in order to do the change in declination, you need two measurements. So that's why I didn't do it yet, because I couldn't do it from just this one. I needed this one. So I was hoping somebody would say, yeah, do the second one, because I had it ready. So, but to do the change in declination, the last column, first of all, for observation one, there will be no change in declination, because there's nothing to compare it to. So for the first column up there under change in declination, the very first one, you can just put not applicable or put a line through it. There's nothing to calculate there. 
But for the others, to do the change in declination, oh boy. So change in declination, we just take the current observation, which was minus 21.31, and we subtract the previous observation. So we take that negative 21.31 minus negative 22.39, which comes out to be, and you gotta, we got to watch your signs on these, but it will come out, oops, and i got to divide it, that's right. So that'll be what, 1.08 degrees. But we're not done. We're not quite done yet. We have to do it in degrees. We have to figure out how, how, what, what rate it was moving. And my observations are nice because you know, I made them up myself. I was able to do this. And I made them all a week apart. You didn't have that luxury with yours. You couldn't observe every Tuesday because this one was cloudy and this one wasn't. And you had to make an observation another day. So you couldn't do that. So you have to divide it by the number of days between the observations. So it's actually going to be, we divide that by seven days in my case. Yours might change. It might be three days apart once. might be seven days apart. might be 23 days apart when you had that big stretch of rain. Whatever the number of days it was between the observations. So you divide that by seven days and get plus 0.15 degrees per day. So it should be about point, is that right? 0.15 degrees per day. And that would go in the second row underneath. So the first one there would be nothing and the second there would be, beyond that you would get a number for, a number for each one. So that's how you go through and do them and you take the next one, you'll take observation 3 and subtract observation 2. Then you'll take 4 and subtract 3. And you'll take 5 and subtract 4 all the way down to 20 and subtract 19. So that should give you some practice to that. And then the other thing I've given you, and I didn't realize till today that I'd made a mistake on it, but uh, is the graph information. I've given you some paper to use for the graphs. You're welcome to use your own. You don't have to use this. The reason I printed out this one, well, first of all, I've done all the scales for you. So if you actually look at the second page, because I stapled them backwards, the second page is actually your de- for your declination graph. I have the x-axis is already set in the time and weeks. So you can actually do 16 weeks worth of data. And your y-axis is already labeled. You can certainly go ahead and do your own, however you want, as long as you're labeling it appropriately. That's fine if you want to use your own graph paper. The other nice thing about this one is that if you notice on the bottom, between 0 and 1 and 1 and 2, between each of those, there are six tick marks, meaning that they're set up in days. So that if you set this to be one a certain day, then you're counting. You know, this, if this is every Sunday, then the, next, then the first mark is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. The next big mark is Sunday again. So you can count through the days a lot easier than the typical graph paper where you might have two blocks and you've got to try to estimate, okay, Wednesday would be halfway through. So you can just count the days. It makes it a lot easier to do. And then I've already set up the axis so this will hold everything you could possibly observe. If you actually put your numbers on this, you might find a few glitches. You might find some case where you got it a very large number that doesn't fit on this scale. 
That's fine. You might have found a very large negative number that doesn't fit on this scale. That's fine. I'd make a notation that it was there. But don't try to redo the whole graph to fit on one point. Maybe you made a mistake somewhere along the line. Maybe you made a mistake in the calculations or somewhere that threw off that number. So that's how to say that. That one's all set up and all you need to do to this is to plot for the first day. And I would recommend for mine actually starting with observation two, which is on January 14th. That'll get you through most of the, that'll get you through pretty much the whole semester. So you start with zero would be January 14th. And then one would be January 21st, January 28th. February 4th, the 11th, and so on. So you could just label those. You won't get through all of the numbers I've given you. You'll only get through number 16. You'll get through, the last one would then be April the 29th. But you'll get through the entire semester that way. So any observations you had, unless you were one who made them really, really early, you know, one of the first day or two of classes, you're, you're fine. Everything, everything will fit on there. You can use, you can use both. You'll put mine, so you plot, I hope you can get my numbers plotted today. I hope you can plot mine out today, do the calculations, see how we can do on that, and then look at that. If we have trouble with it, if you need to work on it this weekend, bring it back in on Monday and we'll look at it again. You know, I'll take a few minutes at the end of class or something to, you know, to check them and so we can see how you're, do, how you're doing on it. The mistake I made, and I apologize, I didn't catch it until I was graphing them myself this morning after I'd printed out, is on the first graph where it says the change in declination in degrees per day, those numbers on the y-axis are completely wrong. They won't work. Question? Yeah. Are we plotting the, the change in declination? Is that the number that we're actually You're going to plot the, declin the last two columns. There's two graphs. Right. You're going to plot the declination on the one I was just talking about. Right. And then you're going to plot the change in declination on this one, on, this, on the top graph. But what I'm mentioning, the, the scale's wrong where it says 1, 1.2, 1.4, you're going to have to change those. And it's going to be, how did I say it works better? Minus, yeah, there it is. Let me get it right so I don't have you scribble them out. You start with, at the bottom, running out of paper here, but if you start down here at minus 0.5, and each large mark is then 1 tenth. So it's minus 0.4, minus 0.3. So what I had is 1 becomes minus 0.5. What I had is 1.2 becomes 0.4, and so on. Each large mark, and you'll end up at plus 0.5 at the very top. That'll fit anything you could possibly graph in there for the, for the change in declination. So I apologize if I'd noted, caught it earlier, I would have reprinted them, but I didn't realize it until I was doing them this morning that I'd I'd used an old version that I'd done it a little bit differently, but this is the better way, better way to do it. So there's two graphs that we can look at. So what I'm going to do, we've got about a half an hour left. I'm going to go ahead and give you the course evaluations. Now that I've just given you all this, I probably should have done the evaluations first, but you know, don't, 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 don't shoot me. No. Um, but let me pass those out and then I will leave for about five minutes just to give you some time once you've collected them all and Cameron's going to take them all for me. I've got a folder here to put them in. And then once they're all done, then I'll come back in and I can just walk around with you the rest of the class and you know, help you through the calculations. I'll get you through the calculations so you're all set on them. And we'll take a look at that. So let me give you the, these. I do have pencils if anyone needs one to fill these out. These are about the only Scantrons I use. And I do ask that, good, I brought you the right ones. If anyone need a, anyone need a pencil. Anyone else need a pencil? A couple need it. If you can, just put them back up after because I 
use them for the next class. Anyone else? Other one? Pencil? 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 I got a question. You Are we pencil. plotting both on the graph, both these numbers and ours, or? You can plot both of them on the same graph. So you can, yeah. but yeah. if we like if you, want, if you already have your own graph of yours, you can do yours separately too. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. I'm just give, giving this so you have an example of how to go through, because this is what usually gives people the trouble. I have one more. If anyone else need a pencil, pencil? No? OK. So let me hand these out. And then I ask you to be honest on them, which is why I'm supposed to leave the building. <laughs> or not the building, at least leave the room, so that you'll answer them honestly. But I ask, also ask that you do do them very honestly. I mean, that means if you didn't like something about the class, tell, tell me what part you didn't like. But if you really hated the class, but there was something I did good, please tell me what was, you know, give me a good on something that was good. And if you loved the class, but felt there was something, you know, don't give me straight, oh, I agree with everything. You know, tell me where, the, where it was weaker and where it can be improved. Because that helps me when I look at these. You know, it doesn't help when you know, I can look at sometimes the results and I can say, oh, guess what? Someone didn't like me. Someone gave me, you know, disagrees all the way down. Well, you know. I can understand that, but somehow I don't think I was that bad on everything. And somehow I don't think I was perfect on everything either. So if you give me straight agrees all the way down, that's wonderful. But you know, tell me where I was a little weaker. That way when everybody puts them together, it actually helps me. So I'm going to leave you these and I'm going to leave you the envelopes so you can put them in. And then I th I'll give you about five minutes to, to work on them. Here you go, Cameron.